Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. I hope you have enjoyed our Melvin Van Peebles series in which we talked about the life of one of cinema's most revolutionary artists, but also discussed the long and complicated history of black representation in American drama. But when it comes to more recent history around this subject, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome an illustrious guest. Jonathan Braylock is an actor, writer, producer, and comedian. And we knew each other over 10 years ago when we were both NYU acting students at the Stella Adler Studio. But he has since gone on to act in shows like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Broad City, as well as commercials and feature films. He is an acclaimed writer working on shows like Grownish and developing projects with Rami Youssef and Judd Apatow. He is the co-creator and co-writer of the first all-black improv team at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater called Astronomy Club, which was then later adapted into a sketch show on Netflix. And he is the co-host of the fabulous podcast, Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood, along with Gerard Milligan and James III, which reviews films with leading black actors and discusses them in the context of Hollywood's race problem. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Braylock. Wow. This is definitely what it feels like to be on NPR, I think. I feel like if I was <laughs> if I was a guest on NPR, it would be something to that because they're very good at building people up and you did that very thank you so much. I, that those are very nice. Except I work really hard to not have like Ira Glass voice and I go and not going up at the end of my sentences. <laughs> oh no. Jo- I tapped <laughs> into a trigger. <laughs> John- Jonathan Braylock is an actor, writer, producer, yeah. and comedian. Uh, we knew each other over 10 years ago. It's just like a, such a distinct and uh, pleasant voice to listen to. But but yes, you don't. It's like, I don't. How do I not imitate that? You know? It's and it's <laughs> fine. It's totally fine for him. I, like, I yeah. love him doing his thing. Right. But it's it's the spread of the yeah. of the of the voice, you know. Yeah. So but I'll take it. I'll take the compliment. I'll yes. <laughs> I more mentioned the phrasing, not in the like tonation of Ira Glass, but <laughs> I, I apologize if I was saying something that you were actively trying not to do. Yeah, I'm not triggered at all. I'm not triggered at all, Jonathan. Um, I'm totally cool. I can totally proceed with this interview. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's uh, it's great to see you. I mean, we we haven't seen each other in like 12 years, and even when we did, don't say that. Is that true? Holy crap, man! It's so crazy. Yeah. Oh bro. man, we are old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you have this you have this amazing podcast, and uh, I was reading yeah. a little bit about it. So this podcast it started ironically uh, with an argument on Facebook. Possibly right. this is the most productive argument that has ever happened on Facebook <laughs> because it has led to this amazing podcast. So tell me right. what was the, what was the initial argument? Yeah. So the initial argument was uh, James the Third, my co-host and friend, uh, made a post that basically said questioned why martin lawrence didn't become a bigger household name after the movie blue streak 
Now, if you aren't familiar with the movie Blue Streak, um, you're a normal person. And it's because <laughs> it's a very mediocre comedy starring Martin Lawrence and Luke Wilson. It's a buddy cop film. That's a, The premise of it is essentially Martin Lawrence is a jewel thief who, who hid uh, diamonds uh, in a building before getting caught. And then once he uh, finally serves his time and comes out of jail, he goes back to the place where he hid the diamonds and realizes that that place is now, in fact, a police station. And therefore, he's going to pretend to be a cop from out of town tr- to try and get those diamonds back and then winds up getting kind of looped into like at an active uh crime investigation it's great great premise <laughs> it's a lot a, a truly wild premise um and it's it's fine and, and basically james the third's point was that martin lawrence was very very good in the movie and he wanted him to be a bigger household name i then started arguing with him that he was a very big household name and that the movie big mama's house came out after blue streak and that's arguably <laughs> that is a, an extremely popular film uh, that spawned a sequel and made a lot of money. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people know Martin Lawrence from the Bad Boys franchise. Bad Boys, yeah. you know. So uh, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, <laughs> but it basically that because we were arguing back and forth, that kind of dovetailed into this conversation because we were saying Martin Lawrence was one of the biggest black actors in Hollywood at the time. It kind of dovetailed into this conversation of wow, there aren't a lot of leading black actors in Hollywood. You know, there are, especially at that time, there is like a handful that, you know, like you have Will Smith, Denzel Washington. You have comedians like Martin Lawrence and Jamie Foxx, who all, who also wound up doing drama. Um, and, you know, there weren't that many black actors that were co- consistently leading the the leads of major motion pictures and so that that's you know i had always wanted to do a podcast i love movies i love talking about movies it seemed like a great kind of angle uh to start with and then as we did it we realized whoa there's so much here and we honestly ourselves learned a lot by doing the podcast and we've been doing it now for eight years eight years yeah i mean that's that's crazy. I, yeah. you, and you've literally covered hundreds of films in yeah. that span. What are what are some of the highlight films from that seven years? Like as you look or eight year span, yeah. what, as you look back, like what like what are pops into your mind of like, oh, that was a good one. I'm so glad we covered. That. Um, so like early on, you know, we had we covered the film Blazing Saddles, which was a very contentious episode because Jarrah, uh, the our other co-host, uh, actively disliked the movie because he didn't feel it was he felt like blackness was being used uh in a way that like it didn't feel good to him for comedy um and my argument was that it was pretty you know uh progressive for the time that it was created uh even though it was still created by mel brooks a jewish white man um uh so that that that's like a that episode is um kind of sticks out of my mind as like a like it kind of set the tone for like who <laughs> what our dynamics became and like who our kind of like caricatures became on the podcast uh but we've done so many good ones i mean we've had like like the black panther episode was so fun the star wars uh force awakens we had like we've had like some really like uh spider-man into the spider-verse like 
those three in particular were very joyous episodes where we got to celebrate these like kind of um, what felt like at the time very significant moments in black you know cinema um, where yeah there was like a kind of a crossover happening but then <laughs> then there are certain movies like Green Book or uh, <laughs> the somewhat contentious Hidden Figures or there are certain movies where we were like is this fully helping like or is it like this kind of polished um version of racism that makes white people feel good about themselves but not actually actively change anything in their lives because it kind of depicts racism as this thing uh that happened in the past that we've gotten over um yeah so we have episodes like that and then there are just like kind of very silly fun episodes like cats <laughs> you know where we're just like what is this movie and we're just kind of talking about the movie itself not not necessarily talking about race as much uh I, I, cats needs to be discussed on every film podcast yeah. i believe as the as a true like aberration gem of modern cinema yeah. um Release the butthole cut. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I feel like you might have already answered this question with Green Book and Hidden Figures, but was were there episodes in particular, or maybe those were the episodes where you're kind of realizing to yourself, like, oh, this is why we need to have these conversations, or like, this is why this show is, exists? Definitely, yeah. I mean, so movies like, okay, let's take Glory, for instance, which I think we did review, but we were debating whether or not we should even review it because glory is a is a movie about the civil war it's specifically about this um uh, i don't know if they were the first black regiment but uh, i don't i don't think so i don't think they were the buffalo soldiers but they but it's about this um regiment uh in the civil war of like all black soldiers um that wound up uh spoiler alert for glory which has been out for decades now and if you haven't seen it that's kind of wild uh <laughs> but at the end like they they basically are kind of assigned to this suicide mission um and most of them uh wind up perishing in battle but in a, in a very kind of heroic way um and that movie kind of famously um uh has the uh, performance of denzel washington with a single kind of tear that won him his first oscar for best supporting actor um however the movie stars matthew broderick he is the uh lead of that film um and because matthew broderick is white and you know he was the i don't know i forgot what rank lieutenant or whatever of the regiment um we're seeing the movie through his eyes so we're seeing a black story told through the eyes of a white man and we realize how often that happened um in cinema and what that does is con constantly frames race through a white lens um even stories where black people are the heroes is still being told through a white lens and not and i and i don't even just mean the writer and the director i'm saying like the story itself is told through the protagonist of a, a white protagonist character you know so you have movies like and these are movies that we cover, but like you, uh, you have movies like The Help, you know, or um, honestly, Green Book, <laughs> um, uh, which we did cover, um, or even like uh, what's uh, Dangerous Minds, you know. Uh, so you have these films that star a lot of people of color, where people of color, it's like it's it's really about their um, 
it's about their world. It's their stories. But there's a white protagonist character that's there usually as a kind of savior, like a white savior character. So that's like one of the tropes that we talk about a lot in the movie. Uh, uh, sorry, in the podcast where in movies you have these white savior tropes, these white characters who realize racism is happening and they're going to do something about it and help, you know, the black people or people of color through their crisis. Um, but it's so it makes them the heroes of uh, POC stories. So yeah, that I feel like I just answered the question, even though I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. I mean, talking about like why these conversations are important. I mean, right. which is like, I mean, it's kind of self-evident. I mean, just like look around the culture. But at the same time, I think that like getting down, that is really uh, informative. And it goes all the way back to like, the original like Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin novel or like, right. like Uncle Tom like dies this quote unquote like noble like Christian death. But like yeah. it's totally mediated through the white characters and just. Right. Absolutely. And it's so crazy to me because like so you say that. Right. And it's like that is true. And for the time that that, you know, not that this should have been the the way but like for the time that that was made where literally slavery existed in america right and you had these kind of uh very predominantly christian abolitionists white abolitionists trying to eradicate slavery you know that play makes sense for that time what doesn't make sense is that we're still telling those kinds of stories that were written in the 1800s in in the 21st century you know, like, that's the thing that you're like, what? Like, and you realize how deep, um, how deep this is embedded in our, in our culture. And then I, I, it's funny because I think a lot of people like, because woke became this like maligned kind of term, uh, and easy way to like, you know, I don't know, put a huge kind of umbrella label over a lot of different things that the right disagrees with. Um, it, it's easy for people to forget why stories about POC characters written by POCs and, you know, told through uh, actual POC like protagonists is important. Um, but it is. It How is. has your perspective changed on representation in Hollywood over the course of the show? And also like, because your career is also like progressing as the show happen so how has that evolution like when you think back to your first episode and how you viewed the world and culture then how has it changed at all today yeah i think one i feel like you know representation was something that felt important but it, it i understood it more and i understood the importance of it more as we did the podcast i think one of the things that it's hard to understand because we're in it is how much uh, movies and television affect the general zeitgeist and like kind of our collective consciousness. And, and because American entertainment is so global, you know, at this point, um, because our movies and our television shows are viewed in so many other parts of the world, it actually, it actually affects like not just our country, but other people's perceptions of the world in general so it's not it's not this isn't exclusive to race it's just that when you're talking about in the context of race um it really informs what people think about you know in in the case of our podcast very specifically black americans and 
it's hard to shake those things from our subconscious because it's maybe un- unintentionally, though sometimes it feels like intentionally, training us to view people a certain way. It's training us to, you know, I think even think about like um, how kind of pro-military and pro-cop like most of film and television was for forever until only maybe extremely recently. And even then, it's not, it's still, there's still a lot of shows that are very pro-military and pro-cop. And this isn't um, to say anything bad against the people with those professions, uh, but it does paint a certain picture of the military and police as like ultimate authority. These are the good guys, you know, even when they're doing something quote unquote bad, they're still doing it for the right reasons, unless they're a really, really bad guy. And if they're a really, really bad crooked cop, then the good cops will take that crooked cop and oust them because good prevails over evil, uh, which is kind of a basic human thing that we want to see. But because it, we are so trained in that, it's so hard for people to then divorce themselves from the kind of imagined world of the good cop hero uh, and realize the reality of, hey, there are, are a lot of very flawed police officers who themselves have been trained to view black people as, you know, dangerous and a threat and then you you pair that with a gun and a stressful situation, you get the killing of unarmed black men. You know, um, I, it's it's not a stretch to say those things are connected. Um, and I feel like the more we went through the podcast, the more we realized how affected we had been just growing up and like um, and seeing things a certain way and uh, and realize why it was so important so it was like it went from just like kind of like a general like yeah black people should be in movies more like you know to oh this is really important you know for us because this is like how we train each other how to like see the world like we do that through entertainment because most of us consume it absolutely yeah absolutely i think it's a brilliant point and like the vast majority of our experience of of reality is concocted in our imagination and there and when our imagination is being affected by artistic works and shaped by artistic works like i mean of course it's going to have a huge effect now i'm curious this journey and and that sort of like shift that you went on so when you are starting a project or when you're working on a on a script or on a a, in development what are some of the ways that you apply that understanding and knowledge to your own work both in sort of like both the characters or casting choices that are being represented in Mm -hmm. your films and like sort of how you're uh, crafting those representations yeah i think you know the first is is the awareness of where uh my inclination is to go when I'm writing a character. I think like it's the the default because of growing up in a a world dominated by like a white heterosexual patriarchy. Like when I'm like there are certain characters, like even smaller characters I'm writing, and I'm like, blah blah blah. I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy says this. And then it's like, wait, why did I make that character a man? Like, why couldn't that character have been a woman? You know, like, um, and then I'm realizing, oh, when I'm writing female characters it's like i think it's, it, one one of the things i realized in comedy and, and i mean many women have said this you know it's, this isn't me just coming up with it on my own a lot of times 
especially if you watch like films in like 80s, even 90s, probably even the early 2000s, honestly, like so many of the female characters written in comedies are either the love interests uh, or like the mother or, you know, or they'll be like the girlfriend who is like the person of reason who's kind of like you crazy you know like like stop being so crazy you know especially in television you know that's like a very standard trope of like the dad is like the comedic guy and then the woman's like oh my bum husband you know like kind of thing yeah. <laughs> like a shrew essentially essentially uh which dates obviously back to shakespeare speaking of our training at adler but yeah i i so it's kind of like understanding those and recognizing those trends and then realizing when it's popping up in my own writing and going like, oh, let me not do that. You know, <laughs> let me make sure that this uh, character has uh, depth. Let me make sure that I'm get like we're giving um, uh, female roles um, funny lines that aren't just like, you know, you're so crazy you know wacky guy um and yeah and then like breaking the mold when it comes to diversity when it comes to what ethnicity or race a person's playing when it comes to what sexuality they're they are uh and then you know the the project that judd rami and i have been developing is with our friend steve way who uh has muscular dystrophy and is uh wheelchair bound and you know that's a huge thing in television is you know, there's not a lot of disabled representation, even though, uh, like, it's the largest minority group in America is people living with some sort of disability, uh, whether it be physical um, or or mental or, you know, it could be an invisible disability. But there are a lot of people living with disabilities and that isn't seen often. And then there's this whole world that we're missing, you know, <laughs> um, that is fun to explore uh, and then realizing that those people are also people and they're not like uh, in the world of like Hollywood, there are a lot of characters uh, who have a disability that are kind of used as like inspiration porn. Like it's like, well, if this person can do it, so can you, able body person. Um, you know, they're used as like the way to motivate the able bodied protagonist um, as opposed to just being a, a person who also has flaws um, and maybe isn't a role model, you know, like is just trying to get through life. Uh, uh, so yeah, anyway, that those are some of the ways that, yeah, affects my writing. Is there another side to it? Because I think, you know, I feel like sometimes you can also feel, especially like, um, like getting sides from some of the bigger, uh, bigger budget projects, where you almost like feel production, almost like having a kind of like a checklist that they're like going through of like making sure they like check their diversity boxes. How do you sort of uh, uh, make sure your work stays sort of true and like more honest than that? Yeah. I yeah I mean that's tough I don't know I because there is a I will say I do think sometimes people get bogged down into doing exactly what you're saying which is like I feel like that's how like <laughs> like do you remember like the super friends like there was like a period of time in Hollywood where like it would be like hey let's get the colors of the rainbow in here you yeah. know like we'll have our we'll have our one black person on our 
one uh, Hispanic person and our one Native American. And, you know, there's, uh, I mean, more recently, like we'll have our one gay character. But what happens with that is that they get kind of stuck into these tropes. So like, there's always the gay best friend, you know, or like the black sidekick who's maybe like a magical Negro type character where they're like, you know, giving, departing some wisdom to the white protagonist or, you know, so we don't, we don't want to do that. I think it's more just like reflecting our everyday life. And I will say that doesn't mean that does mean that there are going to be some stories where there isn't a load of diversity in a particular film. And I don't think anyone's there are very few people I should say I should say no one. But most of the people advocating for diversity are not advocating for there to be like a set number of diverse characters in a film. What they're advocating for is that Hollywood's like would break the mold and break kind of the default like lines of thinking like only this type of person can be can play this type of role like you only a white man can be the action hero like that's just not true um it's not reflective of real life and it's not and it shouldn't it certainly shouldn't be reflective of our imagination that but that doesn't mean that we can't tell you know a story i mean and and of course that people do this anyway but like it's not, it doesn't mean that you can't tell a story that is like hey this well this story is about exclusively like white men working in i don't know in whatever some period into period time and like <laughs> coal mines or something i don't know but like <laughs> and look look huh, look i mean there's always a way i mean the this is a this is just a side tangent like they whenever you're pitching if you ever enter the world of writing and pitching in uh film and television uh, period pieces are something they always tell you like don't do that because it, it's, it's so hard to green light these because of how much it costs you know it costs so much for them to do the costumes and and the sets and all that stuff so, like period pieces cost a lot of money we don't want to hear period pieces uh but there are so many period television shows and movies being made and my sometimes my like kind of it's i guess it's not really a um a conspiracy theory but i i feel like Oh, yeah, that's because it's the easiest way to have like all white casts and like nobody can say anything about it. You know, you're like, well, that's just, <laughs> that's what the time was. And you're like, all right, yeah, I guess you're right. Like 1923, like that's what it is. You know, what can we say? You're like, yeah, sure. You know? <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, okay, good one. Uh, but anyway, anyway, to answer your question, it's more just kind of trying to reflect real life and not just kind of go outside the box in, in, in traditional thinking uh, without feeling uh the need to make a like a checklist you know because that ultimately i i'm a black man i'm like i want i'm going to be telling stories it's always going to come through my lens i don't want that to limit me to the characters that i write um but if it's like a story that's very much centered sorry my dogs are barking a uh, very much centered around a specific like i'm not going to write a story of like i'm not going to write a movie about um, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, black, black, uh, gay activist. Um, uh, oh, uh, I am not uh, your Negro. Um, James Baldwin. Yeah. James Baldwin. Right. So like, if there's a biopic about, you can leave all that in. If there's a biopic <laughs> about James Baldwin, <laughs> uh, and somebody says, John, can you write this? I'd be like, I think maybe you should find a, a gay black man to write this, you know? Uh, because that story is, so precious you know uh however that doesn't mean that i can never write it it doesn't mean that i will never write 
a script um, about where there is a gay black protagonist, you know, just not maybe that particular one. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally, yeah. totally. <laughs> um, I definitely agree. I think in this, in the course of this series, um, and one of our other guests, um, uh, Dr. Amy Ongiri, brought up the fact that like the black exploitation film movement of the seventies sort of died and gave way to the buddy cop movie yep, where, so. uh, you know, the, like Blue Street. uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> and like they, you know, uh, the executives realized, well, instead of an all black cast movie, we can have a black guy and a white guy in a yeah. buddy movie and both audiences will come. And not to say that, not to say there's anything wrong with a buddy movie or that like there right. can be a black and white man right. or woman or whatever. But it, like but it had to be that. Yeah. Right. It's but like you feel the capitalist like forces oh, yeah. like conforming your brain, which is like a whole other level of like of like brainwashing that we're getting from our entertainment. Right. T- totally. And it, and that's the thing is that, I mean, so much of Hollywood is monkey see monkey do. And yes, they get they find the success. They find like there's a film that works like Beverly Hills Cop, which is, you know, one of the highest grossing rated R movies of all time. And like. And that wasn't even so much a buddy cop. I mean, like they he they had he had white partners, uh, but you know, I mean, he also did Eddie Murphy also did Forty Eight Hours, which was actually a buddy cop movie. Um, and then they're like, oh well, this works so much, let's let's keep doing it. So we get Lethal Weapon, you know, and we get uh, I, I'm blanking on the name of this, but there is a. Uh, there's one with um uh he hosted the Oscars Billy Crystal okay Billy Crystal okay, okay 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 we got one we have Billy Crystal and is it Running Scared yes Running Scared yes <laughs> I I went to Google for that one I can't claim credit for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um yes uh Running Scared Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines that's the name I was blinking on I was like he's a I was like he's a dancer he's a <laughs> what's his name um anyway there are so many of those movies and most people probably haven't seen running scared but that's just to say like there are so many tropes that you start to find and then 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 people just come to expect that they're like all right well yeah if you want a black person to lead like we'll have a white person be the buddy you know going back kind of i'm curious about um your own film history uh or your own sort of movie watching history so uh melvin van peebles he has this quote um uh, about going to the movies as a little boy. And if this is like the 1940s, right? And mm-hmm. he's going into the movie theater and seeing films with like Manton Moreland and Step and Fetch It and like these pr- grotesque representations of of African-American men on screen. And he describes leaving the theater, but he was young and didn't know why he felt worse than when he went in. I'm curious, is there a moment in your own childhood when you remember feeling that the representation you saw on screen like just felt wrong like was was there a moment of awareness for you you know that it not it's hard because the 90s were then it's so funny the 90s which is kind of the era that i grew up as a kid had a lot of representation it was somewhat segregated at times you know there were there was a lot of like black films that were very much targeted to black audiences but we had that. And we also had UPN, which was, you know, a network, telev- like free network television uh, that had a lot of black content. Um, you know, it had shows like Sister, Sister and Girlfriends and Moesha and 
the Parkers, you know, you had a lot of like black sitcoms on television. Um, so, and then, you know, then you had other shows like, you know, Cosby show and like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and like, so like growing up on television, I actually, I actually did feel represented. There were, the I think the, I think the times in which I felt like slightly weird is when there were uh, things like the Power Rangers where it was like, well, I have to be the black Power Ranger because I'm black. You know what I mean? Or like, um, this is more my sister, but like when you had the Spice Girls, it was like she had to be uh, Scary Spice because she was black, you know? So when you have the, and then like, or or like, I think the 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 clearest one was Star Wars because it was like, oh, I have to be Lando Calrissian. You know, everybody gets to be like, this person's a jet, like Luke, a Jedi or what, Han Solo, you know, and then it's like, oh, you can be Lando, you know, because you're black. So like, I think there were those things. Mm. Um, but I feel like weirdly, a lot of millennials who grew up in the 90s had more representation than than either the late millennials, early, very early Gen Z did in the early 2000s because a lot of those sitcoms went away. UPN went away. There weren't as many black films like being made or like targeted towards black audiences. Like that kind of like those like kind of niche uh, like studios felt like they were probably getting gobbled up by the big conglomerates that we have now. And uh, so, and then, yeah. So then there was like a point where you were like, it was like, oh, there's, very 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 few black people on tv and very few black people leading movies it's like the same you know handful um you have like the mega stars like will smith and denzel and then very rarely ever had like or if you did have one you had somebody star in one movie and then you'd never see them again you know or they would only show up in films that were targeted towards black audiences and those films themselves started to just be like these huge cast films you know where it was like there's like 10 actors in and you're like oh my god this is a star-studded cast uh but they're all black working black actors who only mostly black <laughs> the black community knows and you know i remember when uh taraji p henson was nominated for hustle and flow i forgot when she gave the speech but she gave a speech you know, like I think it was at the Oscar maybe he was presenting or something at some point she was like, oh, for white America, like, hello, you know, like you probably don't know me, but I've been, in mo- you know, I've been doing movies and television for quite some time, you know, and that's just kind of how how it was. Do you have a, an answer as to like why that like cycle seemed to like take place at that time? Well, I, you know what it is? I think there was there was this boom that happened that was somewhat synonymous with uh, rap. Um, so like kind of rap exploded and became this like hugely profitable commercial venture a lot. If you go back and look at a lot of the so-called like hood films and that era where, you know, there were a lot of films being made that showed the inner city life. Um, you had a lot of rappers starring those movies. And I feel like Hollywood producers felt like, I don't know, we're not going to cast a, we're not necessarily going to cast black trained actors but we will cast this rapper because they are a household name and therefore you know can promote our film in a certain way so and look some of those actors wind up being great you know like ice cube made a lane for himself and you know will smith is one of my favorite actors and uh you know you 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 had some some cool stuff come out of that but it was very much like 
that's what it was, you know, like, you know, like DMX was starring in movies. Right. You know, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> he wasn't a, wasn't a good actor, you know, I mean, rest in peace, but he got to be because he was a, he was a very popular rapper. Uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, I, but I think like as the kind of novelty of that started to go away, they weren't being uh, cre- made as much. And then, you know, there is kind of, I mean, maybe not anymore necessarily, but there was very much like a TV to film pipeline, you know? So if you start in a television show there and you were like the lead of a, like a big time television show, like you kind of got to crack at the move at movies, you know, and will obviously got to do that with fresh Prince, And then he got to start, started to star in movies. Um, but when you take away the television shows that black actors got to star in where, and audiences kind of familiarize themselves with an actor in their face, uh, then it's harder for black actors, those people to be cast in higher roles. And it's like a trickle down effect. You know, I don't, I don't really know the kind of uh the actual film history of like when certain studios were bought by now like parent companies and stuff but i know that was happening and it's at a point now where you know basically like most studios are like there's like seven there's like seven actual studios and like every other name that you hear is actually just a smaller branch of another studio because even the big studios have their indie labels uh, that are another name, but it's still owned by the same company. Yeah, I think you can look it up on the on the internet where you can see a graph, and it's like these big globs yeah. of like parent companies, like Disney or whatever, and all yeah. the little subset companies that they own. It's quite shocking um, to see how our media diet is controlled by seven entities. Yeah. Pretty disturbing. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's, I would definitely imagine that that would uh, have an effect as well. So. You're also the co-creator of the Netflix series Astronomy Club, which I mentioned in the bio, and it started off as the first all-black team at Upright Citizens Brigade. Was that a conscious choice of you guys, or was it something that happened organically? Yeah, so yeah, we were the first all-black house team, um, and that distinction just means that we were... UCB had, you know, they they could have like one-off shows or, you know, people can get runs of their own show, but they had their like their Harold and Lloyd Knights were their 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 house teams um and it was by design James III kind of was the one who called us all together like the Black Avengers of Improv and he <laughs> was like assemble and you uh uh and we all came forth no but yeah he we, you um there was like a brief moment in time where you could audition as a team um i think it was this maybe the second year that was allowed uh and james thought it would be really cool for there to be an all black house team there had already been an all uh uh, woman uh, team and so I, he probably was inspired by that um, and yeah we auditioned together and we got put on uh, a team together as a team there was no um, guarantee that that would happen but it did I think it was only like one of maybe three or four times that it ever happened where eight people auditioned together and all got put on the same team and we actually only really we only lasted for a year before the artistic director at the time broke us up but we wound up doing a sketch show together and that sketch show that we did got a run at the theater and that kind of spun into this digital series that we wound up doing with comedy central 
And then we use videos of that as our kind of proof of concept for our own show, which we pitched to a few networks, but Netflix being one of them. And and very uh, fortunately, we was able to, to make it. Uh, what an incredible story. I mean, just yeah. like... That's amazing. Um, and it's a great show. If you haven't seen it, check it out on Thank Netflix. I, I'm curious, like going all the way back to sort of like those early days within the improv comedy space, which has long been like a notoriously like white male space. Right. Was there, how did you feel, or even like collectively as a group, did you feel like a responsibility towards that representation? Or was it more sort of like, we're going to do what we do and people can either like it or not? Before we auditioned, it was more about us trying to make space for ourselves, you know, because essentially what was happening in the improv scene was what was already happening in the kind of greater television film landscape, which was like you were seeing less and less representation, like representation actually was getting worse in media. And we weren't like we were some like somewhat conscious of it, not as conscious as we are today, but it was like we were in it. We were like in the moment and like on the ground floor of that being like, what? Like, oh, yeah. Like it was like kind of like a joke running joke that like there are like, you know, a couple of black people that are allowed to be in the, you know, <laughs> on the inside. And then like if one black person left Harold uh, Knight, then it would be like, oh, there's a spot there's a there's the black spot is open you know what i mean um uh that's truly how it how it felt so wow. we were kind of making a, a trying to make a space for ourselves but i once we did get upon the team and it was pretty like synced up with what was happening i think in america at large which was like there were more cries for representation and diversity we were kind of like in the middle of that and then very much felt a responsibility um to both uh assist in that but also like be good <laughs> you know and like show <laughs> that you know we like deserve to be here and other people that look like us also deserve to be here i'm curious um w one of the things that came up in the melvin van people's story was um er earlier on in his career and he, he sort of changed his opinion about this later but he early on published a manifesto in French, um, which he declared as a black filmmaker the the right to be ordinary. Yeah, and he's you know talking about this tension between being an artist and being a black artist. Sure. How how have you navigated or experienced this dynamic in your own work and career? That's so. I love that. Like we actually talk about that. It, we talked about that in the episode of our very very early episode of our podcast uh where we, we we did in the heat of the night uh and we did that with keegan michael key uh which was an awesome uh guess for us to get at at the time and uh he was amazing and <laughs> and uh we talked about this trope of the extraordinary negro or excellent negro i think we called it and, and sorry to interrupt real quick but that that was a major sticking point for Melvin Van Peebles as well, because he he wrote this manifesto the year after that movie uh, came out. That movie came out, which was wow. It, that movie came out December nineteen sixty seven, and yeah. he hated. You know, he he just described like Sidney Poitier is a black doctor who might as well walk on water, and he's marrying this pimply faced nobody. Right? Yeah, like <laughs> I know, and that I mean, goodness, the Green Book very similar stuff but um yes exactly and it's like you have 
he's basically it was like in order for a, a black character to exist and people not think racist thoughts about them they had to be perfect and they couldn't be flawed um and you know that trope kind of existed and I, and and there is a way in which a lot of black people and i've definitely felt this and i know we felt this as astronomy club and i'm and i know other people have felt it like there is a way in which to com- to you feel the pressure of having to be great to feel like you were deserving of uh anything like a, a spot you know and um yeah there's a lot of a pressure that comes with that and it's hard to just be ordinary you know one of the things we talk about one of the things we talked about on the podcast is like we'll do we'll review a film and we'll be like this film was okay and that's good we should be able to have movies uh that star black actors like black actors are the leads of that are just fine and those people get to continue to have careers <laughs> because that happens with white actors all the time <laughs> yeah. you know it's like it shouldn't be that this person does one movie and it bombs and they're like well you can you can't sell a movie it's like i'm sorry uh there are many other actors here that are not batting a thousand so i don't know (laughs) not to not even to get into like the complicated reasons why a movie doesn't sell and putting that on the one star of the movie doesn't actually make any sense no no it's a a great point um and uh i'm curious you know thinking back to like how you know we first met and we, we didn't know each other that well like back in the day but coming out of um coming out of college you know what? It, what did you imagine your career looking like? I mean, I'll be honest. Like I, I, you know, both simultaneously believed in myself and believed that I could make it in this industry, and also couldn't picture it happening. You, you know what I mean? Like it's it's hard to because it's so. I didn't know anyone. Like uh, my parent parents are couldn't be further removed uh from the entertainment industry and like i didn't know anyone growing up really who was like that connected to it so i it was hard to envision it happening it was very much like a dream and a passion um and so i didn't necessarily i mean i had like daydreams of being uh, the star of movies and stuff like that but i i didn't necessarily have any like realistic expectations um that said i i i don't I don't. I never imagined um, one that at a certain point in time I would feel like uh, selling a television show that I was the creator of would feel easier than getting cast in a supporting role in a movie. But it has turned out that way. <laughs> if it's turned out the way that it's, it feels harder to get. It feels like almost nearly impossible to get a, re- a recurring role in a television show than it does to just sell my own television show where I star and create it and I'm the boss of. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know how that is, but it is very real for me specifically but hey hey i'm I, i'm right there with you man <laughs> having achieved neither the 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 latter seems like the more feasible path yeah yeah you know as this incredibly successful multi-hyphenate artist what is something that you think is misunderstood by people who are not in in the industry Whew, i mean that's a such a broad category I yeah like. i mean there's like a million things that are misunderstood, <laughs> but you know anything that comes to mind that like yeah 
you, that you think people who do, who don't actively grind day in and day out mm-hmm. in this job that like you you find that they just are, are unaware of i think you know so in terms of acting i think people are unaware of how long so many actors are at this um and how many things they've done before they've gotten to like a place of prominence. I feel like a lot of times people are like, oh, this new, you know, actor. And sometimes it is like a young, actually a young person who is starring in things for the first time. But a lot of times, like, you'll see someone and they'll pop and then and then you go back and you realize like, oh, that person had this small role like, you know, eight years ago in this movie that I saw and I just never recognized them. Um, so like it is very much a grind and people are hustling constantly um and also it's not a meritocracy i think maybe people do kind of know that but it's tough i i it's not necessarily that the best actor gets the job or the best writer gets the job again people may subconsciously kind of know this but not think about it actively there are so many voices that go into anything that is made um and that it's like the credit is usually get like in film it's like given to the director and maybe the the main star of the film or in a television show it could be given given to the the showrunner or the or the main star but there's like so many there are so many people and voices that are going into that and then so much uh oversight that kind of messes with the process. Um, and so it is extremely difficult, even in this day and age where there is so much scripted content, it is still extremely difficult for anything to ever get done. Um, and uh, for it to be good, it f- sometimes feels like a miracle. I say it to my non-industry friends all the time, like just the fact that this is made and on your screen right now is, like you said, a miracle. Yeah. It truly is staggering. And the amount of things that can go wrong, it's just, even before like you even get to set, the number of things that yes. can blow up your project and kill Correct. your dream and leave you to die on the vine is just truly staggering. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so you mentioned that the, this industry is not a meritocracy, which I could not agree more on. The, and this just occurred to me and popped into my head because it flies in the, uh, it, it kind of is at odds with that um, myth of black excellence in order to like have a, like a seat at the table. It's mm-hmm. like, you have to, you have to be great. You have to be the best. And yet right. the not like the meritocracy is also a myth. And it like, right. The two ideas kind of like collide. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, I mean, I think like I th- I think that, you know, what a lot of black filmmakers and actors or writers would say is that those people who are successful really were so, so good. And they had to overcome so much just to even get a chance, you know, um, uh, and I and I, and the reality is that is true. That is true regardless of your race it's just that much there's just this extra barrier um because hollywood just like every industry um is uh runs on relationships and relationship building and you know when white there are like white producers or white writers or white actors like those people uh no other white producers or white writers or white white actors and like there's friendships there and like you get opportunities because of that you know you get put into a movie because your friend is the directing it or this person gets to 
you know, be on the crew or this person, this producer knows this writer and brings them in. Like it just, that just stuff happens all the time. And again, not that it necessarily shouldn't happen, but you can see how easy it is for uh, diversity to not happen if you're not intentionally trying to put it in. I think that's one of the big misconceptions that a lot of people have. Uh, maybe maybe not anymore, but certainly growing up, we like this idea that like, well, if you just stopped, if you stop being racist, then like racism will end and like the effects of it will end. It's like, no, no, no. You actually have to be intentional about pulling it out because, you know, when you just leave it be, it's like, yeah, people are just going to be like, oh, like, oh my God, we have an all white room. Why is that? Well, all these people are good writers, you know, and and maybe that's true, you know. But you never even saw this other person's sample because they couldn't even get an agent because you know what I mean? Or like you never heard of them because you asked for recommendations from your friends and they all knew the same pool of people. I mean, I've as a as a white creator, I've experienced this blunder like personally or like walked right into it and with like the best of intentions of like, yeah, I'm just trying to like, you know, like see the best actor available and like and and it's been really eye-opening to even cover this series and just see the long tired history of of um of really dangerous decisions that people have made and at times like not because yeah there's some sort of craven secret racist but because they're just not thinking clearly they're not thinking about right. the historical implica implications of what they're doing they're not seeing how the structures and the long precedent of how things have been going back hundreds of years have like led to making a given decision in a creative space. And I think ultimately people do want to believe in somewhat of a, a meritocracy. And so there's like a defensiveness that comes in when it's even pointed out. Um, and it's like, well, what are you trying to say? Like, oh, well, I you know, and like, I think like John Stewart even experienced it. I remember at one point, you know, where I, somebody said something and he, he was kind of, I think it's like even, even someone who can, people who consider themselves pretty progressive, um, didn't realize the blind spots that they had, and even doing something like, "Oh, we're, we're taking we're taking blind submissions," so we really have we're really not. But it's like, okay, but you've been practiced in a certain form of comedy for so long, you know, that is suited to your style, and you haven't even necessarily thought about this other way that people can be doing something. And therefore, your tastes are still going to be aligned, you know. So even if you're doing a blind submission, it's not truly blind, you know. Like, and it, until you realize that there are other ways that other people see things, and the fact that we were all kind of trained with this certain mindset growing up by films and television that we saw, you're it's it's you're not going to be able to undo it, you know, uh, just by you know being quote unquote colorblind. Uh, uh, like, yeah, I mean. It's complicated, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there. It's just, <laughs> well, if you want to get into much deeper discussions, Jonathan and his co-hosts got it covered over on the black men can't jump in Hollywood podcast, uh, which comes out every week, correct? Yeah. And it comes out every week. Uh, we might be changing the day in which it comes out. Certainly currently comes out on Mondays, but I think we're going to change it to Wednesday. So oh. perhaps we've already made this <laughs> announcement on our podcast, but maybe not. If this podcast comes out tomorrow, you will hear it here first. Luckily, there's literally hundreds of episodes you could go back and <laughs> yeah. binge as you wait between Monday and Wednesday to find out for the next <laughs> drop. <laughs>
Jonathan, do you have any, um, where can people follow you? And uh, do you have any upcoming work that you'd like to share? Uh, you can follow me at John Braylock, J-O-N-B-R-A-Y-L-O-C-K on Twitter and Instagram. Um, uh, I'm currently on strike because uh, <laughs> the WGA is on strike. If you haven't heard, uh, go out and support. If we still are on strike by the time you're listening to this, uh, amplify our voices. Uh, AMPTP um, needs to come to the negotiating table with fair and reasonable counters to our fair and reasonable demands. Anyway, uh, but in terms of, yeah, stuff you can watch, you can watch, you know, you can watch Astronomy Club on Netflix. Uh, you can fifth season of Grownish is all out now it's on hulu uh i think my specific episode that i wrote was the fifth episode but i was a writer producer in all of them um and um if you are in los angeles we have a monthly show that's the first sunday of every month at the ucb theater in uh uh franklin um a uh, franklin ave in 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 um los angeles and that's the first Sunday every month at 7 p.m. And it's called Black at the Movies. We just do improv based off of your favorite black films. And uh, it's very fun. It's a very fun show. Uh, and if you don't have a favorite black films, um, you're racist. But that also, <laughs> it's okay. That's okay. You can come and just sit and enjoy. No, and maybe learn a thing or two. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a cool yeah. fun. It's a, it's a cool. I, I fear, I, we always fear that people listen to our uh, sometimes listen to what our podcast is about and they're like, I don't want to just be taught for two. And it's like, no, we're, we're talking about movies. We're having fun. These are movies that you watch and like and, and then it's just our opinions on them. And every now and then we talk about the context of race and, and some serious stuff but like it's yeah you know Ed, it's, it's edu- it is very lighthearted. <laughs> it's entertainment <laughs> it's, it's, yeah exactly it's not it's not a freaking uh you know ken burns documentary even though i find those very entertaining um <laughs> you know <laughs> we're cracking jokes constantly for sure no it's a fantastic podcast everybody should go check it out go check out all the shows see the work that jonathan deserves to be fairly compensated for and stand in solidarity with the wga thank you uh, thank you so much uh everyone for listening and until next time that's a wrap <laughs> <laughs>